Welcome to the first season of Murder and 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder and 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. This murder happened on Vancouver Island, a place I call home. It's hard to believe that evil can be so close. Teenage murderers are rare, and it's more rare for two with the same psychopathic tendencies to find each other and plan a murder together. Langford is a small city just outside of Victoria. Its population has grown substantially due to its housing affordability, shopping amenities, parks and trails. And one of those trails is the Galloping Goose, a 40-mile path that runs from Victoria through Langford and out to Souk. Kimberly Proctor lived in Langford with her older brother and her parents. She was a New Year's baby in 1992. Growing up in a close-knit family, she loved animals, including her hamsters, cats, pet rabbit Sunny, and her dog Miko. She was pretty with long chocolate brown hair and soulful dark eyes. She was a typical teenager, chatted online with her friends, and was a fan of Avril Lavigne, a Canadian singer and songwriter. You may recall her hit Skater Boy. Melissa, her best friend since 7th grade, described her as talkative with a great sense of humor. Another friend, Talina, said that she had a big heart and was always laughing. For Kim's sweet 16th birthday, she and her girlfriend stayed up all night dancing and watching movies. Cruz Wellwood also grew up in Langford, but was a stark contrast. With a thin, wiry frame and light brown, wispy hair with bangs that hung in his eyes, the Goldstream Gazette reported that when he was seven years old, his father confessed to sexually assaulting and strangling to death a 16-year-old girl and was sentenced to life in prison. When Cruz was 10, he went to live with his grandparents for four years, then moved in with his mother, but their relationship was rocky. His teachers would say he was gifted but arrogant and anti-female and was violent towards other students, once breaking a teen's head open with a chain. Later, he wrote in his online blog about 17 symptoms of being a serial killer and claimed he met all the criteria. Cameron Moffat also grew up in Langford. His frame was husky and his dark hair cut short in a military style. He was known to have anger issues. As a young child in kindergarten, he pushed other children, lashed out his younger sister and the family dog. Cam struggled in school, both academically and socially. He was suspended in middle school and expelled permanently from secondary school for bringing a box cutter to school. Cruz and Cam met in fifth grade. They skipped classes together to smoke pot and began drinking alcohol by age 10, then escalated to drugs like ecstasy and LSD in their teenage years. They both played video games, including World of Warcraft, an online role-playing game that can be violent. 
In October 2009, Kim was dating one of Cruz's friends when Cam flirted with her, sending her messages. But she rejected his attempts. Then, when she broke up with Cruz's friend, she went on a couple days with Cruz, but broke it off via text message. Cruz wasn't impressed that he didn't even get a phone call and harassed her using MSN chat for an entire month. In March 2010, Kim was in grade 12 and had just learned that she had enough credits to graduate. She was excited as afterwards she planned to volunteer at Wild Ark, a center that rehabilitates wild animals. And one of her favorite pastimes was sewing, and she was going to sew her prom dress with her grandmother. Meanwhile, Cruz had assaulted his mother and was out on probation. At some point, 16-year-old Cruz and 17-year-old Cam discovered they shared the same fantasies of raping and killing women. Together, they made plans to carry out their fantasy. Over a year, they used online chats to hone their plan down to every detail. On Thursday, March 17th, Cruz texted 18-year-old Kim, asking to see her. She texted him back, saying she was surprised to hear from him. That night, the two talked on the phone for an hour and made plans to meet at the bus exchange the next morning. Early Friday morning, Cruz and Cam chatted online, going over their plan in detail, including a code word to initiate the attack and a map of where they would dispose of her body. Then, Cam went to Canadian Tire and spent $17 on camping fuel. At 10 a.m., Kim arrived at the bus exchange to meet Cruz. She was wearing a hoodie with a number 13. The two walked to his house nearby on Happy Valley Road. But what Kim didn't know is that Cam was hiding inside. Kim begged for her life, telling them she was sorry. Clothing was stuffed into her mouth and duct tape used to tape her mouth shut. Then they taped her ankles and wrists together. Court records revealed that over the next few hours, they repeatedly sexually assaulted her. At some point, Cruz's probation officer phoned the house. Then they heard a knock on the door and thought it was him. But when Cam looked out, he didn't see anyone. They continued their attack on Kim, mutilated her body with a knife, and strangled her. They placed her body in a freezer in the garage. She was still alive. Cameron would later tell police that it was the biggest adrenaline rush you've ever had. So much so, they immediately wanted to do it again. While Kim's body was lying in the freezer, slowly dying, they texted another young woman, but luckily she declined their invitation. That afternoon, when Kim didn't show up for a babysitting job at 3 p.m., her parents became worried. She was reliable and would never miss a job. They just knew something was wrong. At 9 p.m., her mother called police, and although she hadn't been missing for 24 hours, they took her call seriously and immediately began searching for her. The next day, the teenage killers removed Kim's body from the freezer and put her in a hockey bag. Then they got on the bus. A short ride later, they got off and walked to the Galloping Goose Trail. 
At a bridge, they ambled down a ravine and set the bag down on a rocky area, poured camping fuel on it, and set her body on fire. Residents in the area heard some screams and noticed a strange smell, but they didn't think anything of it. That part of the trail was used by teens to gather and party in the evenings and weekends, so it didn't seem out of the ordinary. Then the two went about their lives like nothing had happened. Vanity Fair reported that Cruz returned home and spent the day with the girl he was dating, and Cam went to brunch with his mother and grandmother. That evening, around 7 p.m., a young male was smoking pot with his friends under the bridge when he stumbled upon Kim's remains. A missing persons case had now turned into a homicide. The community was rocked. This was not the outcome anyone expected, and many asked how could such a heinous crime happen in our beautiful city. Police urged people, especially women, to not use the Galloping Goose Trail alone. Over 40 officers with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Vancouver Island Major Crime Unit were investigating and tracing Kim's last moments. Tips started pouring in, and with social media becoming popular, police monitored the online chatter. But many were innuendos and rumors, and police would have to comb through all of them to find information that would lead them to her killer. CTV News reported that police discovered comments Kim had made online in the months leading up to her murder, where she revealed that she had struggled to fit in, been bullied, and was scared of teenage girls. And just days before her murder, she posted about a psycho ex-boyfriend that had really bad anger issues, but she didn't name who he was. It took three days for the coroner to positively identify Kim's remains. The autopsy would determine that she had died from suffocation from the duct tape on her mouth. Kim's death now consumed the city. A week after they murdered her, Cam chatted online with Cruz and said, So since we killed her and it wasn't too hard, we should do it again. Friends and family attended Kim's memorial service, and sitting among them was Cruz. After the service, police video surveillance captured him, skipping back to his car. Two months after her murder, investigators with a search warrant descended on the single-story house on Happy Valley Road. The small house sat just steps from the sidewalk, its newly painted siding a light brown with burgundy trim on its lone front window. The front door was recessed as if hiding a secret. Police cars parked in the front and the back. Yellow police tape circled the house. A white tent was erected outside, and forensic technicians donned white suits and entered the house. Their search would last two days. Police announced to the media that Kim's murder had not been random, and that they were closing in on suspects they believed targeted her. Police urged the public to come forward with any information they may have, that the people who knew Kim also knew the suspects, and that it was a crime so sinister that once the details became public, 
the community would be permanently scarred. Corporal Darren Ligon with the RCMP said that this was a brutal and heinous crime. It will be one that the community doesn't forget for a very long time. Now I remember when this news story broke and the thing that caught everyone's attention was the word suspects. That meant there were two. Police invested more than 20,000 hours into their investigation and conducted almost 300 interviews. The thing about teenagers is that they like to talk. They almost always tell someone. And crews in camp were no different in that aspect. They began talking online and revealed that they had chosen her because she was an easy target. One of them said that he had dreamed about killing someone since he was young. But Kim hadn't been their first choice. They had two others picked out, but their plans with them didn't work out. It had been almost three months since her murder when police brought Cam in for questioning. They interrogated him for nine straight hours. He was adamant that Cruz was the mastermind and that he only followed instructions. Cruz was also brought in. The two were interrogated for two full days. Cruz and Cam were arrested and charged with first-degree murder, sexual assault, forcible confinement, and a dignity to human remains. Three days after their arrest, the two made their first court appearance. Their behavior was casual as they talked back and forth. Neither showed remorse. They were held in a youth custodial facility where they remained until their hearing. Both Cruz and Cam were given psychiatric exams and both were diagnosed as psychopaths with little chance of rehabilitation. A year after her death, Kim's friends gathered to remember her at the bridge along the trail where her body had been discarded. Tears ran down their faces for the friend they missed. Talina told the Sandwich News that she thinks about her every day and that I forget sometimes that she's gone and I feel like I can still call her. And although the killer's names hadn't been released to the media yet, her friends and the teens at school knew their identity. Her friend Tiffany, who knew them both, said that they were normal guys and gave away little to indicate future homicidal behavior. As their hearing neared, the two killers would turn on each other, each downplaying their own part in the murder and blaming the other for the most disturbing acts of violence. In October, Kim's parents, Fred and Lucy, were brought to the police station and provided with a statement of facts that would be presented in court the next day. Police wanted them to prepare themselves for what they were about to hear. In court, the two killers entered wearing shackles. Neither showed any emotion. Neither showed any emotion or remorse. They stared straight ahead at the judge. Not once did they turn to look at the family sitting in the front row. Both Cruz and Cam pled guilty. Afterwards, experts concluded that the killers were unremorseful for their actions and lacked understanding of the severity of their crime, and that their psychopathy and sexual deviance put them at a high risk to reoffend. 
at their sentencing hearing, prosecutors argued that they should be sentenced as adults. Victoria Buzz reported that afterwards, Kim's parents were ushered into the judges' chambers and asked if they wanted any of the details kept from the public. Fred told the judge not to hold anything back. They wanted the entire country to know exactly what these two monsters had done. On Monday, April 4, 2011, Justice Robert Johnson said, It is clear that they were both full and willing participants. Both Cruz and Cam were sentenced as adults to life in prison with no chance of parole for 10 years in addition to a five-year term to be served concurrently for indignity to human remains. Their DNA would be submitted to a criminal database, and they would be listed on the Sexual Offender Registry for life. Cam, who was now 19, would serve his time in a federal prison, while Cruz, who was 17, would remain in a youth facility until his next birthday. At the time of their arrest, their names were not made public, because they were under the age of 18 and protected by law. However, after their sentencing, the Supreme Court released the publication ban on their names. As the 10th anniversary of Kim's death approached, Cam waived his right to a parole hearing. But in August 2019, Cruz, who had been moved from a maximum security prison to medium security, was up for day parole, which included escorted outings. The parole board noted that in prison he displayed violent outbursts and that he had shared details of Kim's torture and murder with his fellow inmates and that it disturbed some of them so much that they sought counseling. A recent psychologist report maintained that he was still a risk to reoffend. Cruz's parole was denied. Kim's friends and family live with her loss and the torture she endured every day. And just when they might have a day when things seem to have gotten a little easier, one of her killers will be seeking parole and they will have to relive it again. The house where Kim was murdered still stands, and outside it still looks the same, even the paint color hasn't changed. The trees and shrubs have grown taller, shrouding the house as if trying to hide the horror that existed within. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Jasmine Priore and Ryan Jenkins. Both sought fame and fortune. She is a model, he as a reality star. When their relationship turned violent, she ended up dead, and Ryan, a wanted man. Find out how, after nine days on the run, he turned up dead in a small-town, seedy motel. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music 
sound effect from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>